Good afternoon. Welcome to the Big Tent on KRBX 89.9 Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm from the School of Public Service at Boise State. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler. And we are joined by a special guest today, Stephanie Witt, also with uh, the School of Public Service at Boise State. But thank you for joining us, Stephanie. It's my pleasure, Jackie. Thanks. Yeah. And so we've got some different topics to cover today, starting with the big one, the federal shutdown, which we're on day 27 now a month in we're starting to see um, checkpoints at airports close as it's difficult to get TSA employees um, at some of the big um, airports we've seen I heard today that the animal cams at some of the zoos and things are going down which some of us like to you know uh, divert our attention during the day with these animal cams um, so you know this is historic um, long but it's not just impacting workers in DC um, Stephanie, I think you've been doing some following of federal workers outside D.C. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the federal workforce is not in the District of Columbia, that they're spread out all over the nation. About 79 percent of federal civilian workers are outside of D.C. Uh, here in Idaho, we have about, give or take, 10,000 federal workers uh, and um uh, 5,969 of them uh, work for agencies without current appropriations. So about 58% of the Idaho federal workforce is, is going without pay at this point, which is one of the highest percentages of federal workers without pay in any state. Yeah, that's that's pretty high. Um, and, I mean, and what have you heard? Are there like some efforts to help some of these federal employees? Are there things kind of going on to alleviate some of the pain of going a month without a paycheck? Well, I think there have been some mostly symbolic efforts. They, they, uh, my understanding is the federal workers have received some kind of, of letter or correspondence that they can share with creditors, mortgage holders, and things like that. But uh, I think mostly they're on their own to figure it out. The other part of the federal workforce that's really impacted by this are, is, of course, the contract workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, and the big difference there is that those people who work for the federal government on a contract basis will not get back pay. So when when they're out of work right now, they're they're out. The, the federal employees have the promise of when they come back, they will receive back pay. Although if you lose your home or you lose a car or something, you know, while you're waiting, that's no comfort. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it sounds like for, at least with federal employees, I mean, it's still the major disruption on your life, but possible when it reopens, you get things figured out. But for contract workers, that's, I mean, long term, that's a big impact on your, on your life. Well, I think that eventually we will all begin to feel the bite of this. Of course, the airport travel is, you know, my personal prediction of the thing that's going to push everybody over the edge is when you can't fly. That that's just, then everybody will suddenly get reasonable about looking for a solution to this impasse. Uh, the other thing to remember is that the state of Idaho government, right, the state of Idaho gets about a third of its total revenue from the federal government. So there will be eventually some downstream impacts as the federal contributions to programs we count on here in Idaho dries up. Um, specifically, the Idaho Department of Labor is mostly comprised of funds from the federal government. And so if if and when those begin to dry up, that's going to have an impact. And also, the Idaho Transportation Department receives a lot of flow-through money from the federal government. And here locally, um, there was an article today in the news about our um, uh, housing, public housing efforts being stymied because the um, 
uh, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, will not be sending those funds here to help people find affordable housing. And that's an issue we've really had um, a crunch about here in Boise. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting that you, you talk about some of that f- flow-through money that, that ends up in Idaho. Um, and I was reading an article the other day that talked about you know the number of programs that have money now but are going to shut down if we don't get this figured out. And so you know a lot of these programs essentially had surplus funding that were sitting in, in some account that they were able to you know pull together. So things like the federal courts are scheduled to shut down on February eighth. Uh, they'll no longer be able to take things in. Um, we have you know funding for food stamps. We have funding for housing. All kind of social programs. Um, so there's going to be a slow trickle of things that are open now that are going to start to close because they weren't funded or they're not funded in the long term. They just happen to be able to keep their doors open in the short term. Yeah, I, I wish I knew more about the particular impacts on the Idaho National Lab, for example. Um, there's not only you know employment and the multiplier effect of all those people not getting paid, but also you know some really legitimate questions about the safety and security of sites like that mm-hmm. uh, when they're shut down. And of course, there's an impact on the uh, the tribes in in uh, the state of Idaho who receive federal funding through the you know Bureau of Indian Affairs. Sure. Um, talking about the state impact, do you think if this continues to go on for a while, it could impact like the state legislative session, um, what what they're working on or they're, how willing they may be to increase spending on different things? Well, this is a very cautious legislature anyway, and we're looking at uh, another federal change that's caused a lot of um, unknowns for us is the change in the tax law. Right. So the legislators are down the street trying to figure out, well, how much money will we actually have? Because it changes the flow of the income tax money. And and right now, it looks like we're looking at a, a large uh, de- deficit, right, that we don't have enough right. money coming in. But there's that promise of, well, when we actually all pay our taxes in April, assuming there's someone there to accept right. those payments, then then the money will, will even out. So um, I think there, there are some additional um, insecurities this might create in the in the legislators. And of course, we're talking about a third of the total revenue that the state depends mm-hmm. on possibly not coming through. Uh, a, a thing that I think about is the highway funding, the Garvey bonds, which are uh, sold in expectation of, a dish of future federal money for highways. Is that going to, should we consider that a less reliable source of money right now than we have in years past? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. It seems like they'll be pretty cautious this session anyways, just knowing that revenue issue. And I mean, yeah, we're not dramatically increasing spending all over the place anyways. But it is interesting to think about how an extended federal shutdown may then start impacting states while they're in their legislative session. Well, it does make it uh, seem a little more uh, uncertain what to do when we're also taking on this major new role in regard to the Medicaid expansion. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, when your partner in the expansion, the part that's supposed to be paying, what, 70 or 90 percent is uncertain, then I can see why legislators would be a little bit um, shaky on revenue estimates. Additionally, you may be lacking information, and the person who you would call at the federal agency may not be there to provide information on various numbers or things like that, which could disrupt kind of policy making in the states without that information. All kinds of information, big and small. You mentioned the zoo cams, and uh, this morning I was doing a little research on the census site uh, for my class and realized, oh, that's not being updated either. And if there's a problem, um, you're on your own. So 
uh, numbers big and small. Yeah, um, so some, you know, a v- wide span of issues stemming from the federal government shutdown, which will continue to be on all our minds as we continue to move forward without any resolution. All right, well, we're going to take a break here on the Big Tent, but come back. We're going to move to talking about um, Steve King and, and legislative committees. From Owyhee Ridge to you, this is KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. Radio, it's a sound salvation. Radio, it's cleaning up the nation. Welcome back to the Big Tent on KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-host Luke Fowler, who's running the boards and doing an amazing job so far. Uh, at least for, except for forgetting to turn on the mics earlier, it was not, <laughs> let, my, let me off the hook for that one. Just a minor detail. Thankfully, quickly rectified. <laughs> and we're here with our special guest, Stephanie Witt, um, from, also from the School Public Service at Boise State. Thanks, Jackie. And uh, we're going to move on to talking about kind of a big event this week, what, which was Representative Steve King out of Iowa um, facing a censure of the House for racist comments and remarks, and eventually um, a removal from his committee assignments. Um, so uh, what does it mean to lose your committee assignments? Well, I think you know more about this than I do, but uh, the committee is the workhorse of a legislative body. That's how they really get everything done. You know, when the sausage is being made or whatever metaphor you want to make, it's really done in the committees and subcommittees. So if you're not on a committee, you're not there voting on legislation as it's formed, as it's marked up, as you hear testimony from constituents and agencies about, um, and lobbyists, of course, about Uh, the potential impacts of legislation. So if you're not on a committee, you're not participating in that important part of the legislative process. Yeah, I mean, so really, you're you're not doing much of your job, um, at least through policymaking, a way for constituents perhaps to be quite unhappy with you if you've gone, if, if you've managed to get yourself punished and lose your committees, or perhaps some voters who would be supportive of, of King or other people who lose their assignments would be very mad at them being punished in this way. I suppose that's true, although I think the thing that constituents are focused on is, did you help my Uncle Fred get his Social Security <laughs> check or, you know, my cousin get in, you know, get a letter to get into the military academy or the, you know, veteran services casework? Those are probably the, the actions of a legislator that touch constituents more directly. But you're absolutely right. Uh, if, uh, if I vote for you because you, you're from Kansas, Jackie, if I vote for you because you know farming or something and then you go to D.C. and have no role in any of the legislation about farming, it, it has to be a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which actually has happened to Kansas before, where where people lost their um, positions on the ag committee, and, and voters got unhappy. Like, what? Well, this is not good. You, like, you need to be on that committee. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking before the show that it's we're interested in how often this happens. Um, it's a pretty big punishment that presumably isn't super frequent, but we actually do have a recent case of it happening here in Idaho. Oh, that's true. I I think it was. 2017 that uh Representative Scott uh, was uh, punished for making some uh, demeaning remarks about a fellow legislator and uh, was temporarily removed from her committees. At some point, the 
uh, speaker chose to reinstate her. I'm not sure. I don't remember now if she had to do something in particular to get reinstated. I think there may have been an apology involved, but yeah, I don't remember for sure either. But the interesting thing there was um, that was the speaker's punishment. The speaker um, removed her as opposed to here with the U.S. House where it was a vote. Um, I believe, um, mm. to remove remove him from committees. Well, the timing is interesting, and we were talking about this earlier. Why now? Why? I mean, he's sort of been like this for a long time. These statements aren't new. Uh, it wasn't like they suddenly burst into public view. Um, uh, I don't know. What do you have any thoughts on why? Why now? Well, and it's not just that these aren't new. It's just he's not made some drastically, like, <laughs> this isn't response to something he said this week. Because when I saw the story, I was like, oh, what's Steve Keen say? Like, to deserve it. Like, I kept going. I was like, oh, he didn't say anything. This has just happened, right? Because it wasn't maybe a month or two he was in the news for saying something drastic. And it seemed like that was the time to do it, but nothing happened. Um, so I, I'll be honest that, because I'm kind of cynical about thinking about a lot of this stuff, I questioned the timing on this, um, whether they were like the Republicans just came back and they're like, all right, we got to do something big. You know, they got it. And this was just the symbolic gesture that they chose. Maybe they picked it out of a hat or whatever. I don't feel like this is a, a like a genuine rebuke of his behavior. I think this is more just a like calculated political move. Well, I, I could kind of see maybe where the Republicans say, oh, OK, let us handle this and not have the new Democratic majority and the Democrat leadership really choose his punishment. Like, we'll handle this almost in-house and rebuke him uh, from the Republican caucus instead of waiting to see what the Democrats might think up to do to censure him. Yeah, I think that's a a good point Um, as well. I mean, some of the things Steve King has said, especially comments about the border, aren't that far off from from remarks the president has made, but the party may be very hesitant to censure or like, you know, criticize the president. So here's a way to kind of, you know, push back against that type of language, those the, those topics without it being directly against the president. So, Jackie, something we've talked about on the show before. Do you think this is another step of the congressional Republicans trying to distance themselves from the president heading into what I think we all know is going to be a vicious election cycle this time around. I think that's a good point because we've seen President Trump's approval start to drop with the shutdown as well. And so, again, a way to, to distance themselves some um, with that, without doing it like directly um, and, you know, in, in direct conflict with them. I mean, some are like Senator Romney seems to be much more engaged directly um, against the president, but many seem hesitant to do that directly. Yeah, I think for a lot of these guys, um, they're not going to want to run against Trump. They're going to want to run against some of his policy positions. Um, and so when I see stuff like this, it also makes me think like, oh, is that what they're doing? Um, they want to be able to go out and say, well, Steve King said this and I'm I'm against that. that. Is that the type of thing that they want to be able to advertise on the campaign trail? Well, it's, a, you know, it's kind of a losing numbers prospect if you decide you're um for whites only, for example, at the extreme uh, there, then and you look at well, who are the voters? And you know that's not a strategy that's going to last <laughs> into the future because, of course, the diversity of the country and the diversity of our voting population is is increasing tremendously. So uh, this is only going to work a little while, uh, and then and then there will be a numeric minority of white white voters, uh, and and of them, only some of them are going to want this extreme position. Yeah, I think it was after the... 
I was it after the 2012 election where the Republicans had the the big report come out on how they needed to appeal to a broader diverse you know diverse population, younger, racially diverse, um, do a better job with women, all these things, and they had a, a pretty good plan with which how to do that, and then of course followed none of it. Um, and so yeah, I think you know trying to figure out ways at the very least you can't be. Um, a party, uh, the the party of racists, um, at least not in any official capacity, and appeal to a broad population. So, well, I mean, and to bring up the name of this show, the Big Tent, right? I mean, I think what we've found uh, time and time again, winning political coalitions are big tents that involve a lot yep. of different groups of people. So anytime you narrow yourself down and go, I only represent this type of person, you're automatically limiting your ability to, to govern, right? Um, but, you know, of course, with those big tents come lots of problems, lots of <laughs> internal conflicts that go on. Certainly we see that with the Tea Party and the Republican Party. Um, we saw that uh, during the Obama administration with the, very, the vastly different kind of constituencies that were caught up in the Democratic Party. We're seeing it with the Democrats in the House right now Absolutely. with the majority. Like, a lot of infighting already. Well, I think that applies also to Idaho. I mean, when you have 85% of the legislators from the same party, there's going to be some variation among them about what they think is important to do and how to get at it. So, yeah. um, you know, there there is a natural... Uh, variation there. Right. Well, because in Idaho, we have those rural divisions. We have economic interests. We have the ideological divisions. So, yeah, we have a lot of that internal conflict that does tend to happen within the Republican Party. Now, just to wrap around to where you started on this segment, the, the role of the legislative committee in Idaho is, is exceptionally important, particularly the commu- committee chair. And this is a thing that uh, now I'm, I'm kind of poaching on your territory, nope, Jack, and this for is your, your area of expertise. But in Idaho, the committee chairs control the entrance of bills uh, into consideration to a degree that's really unusual yep. across the state. So if you lose uh, pres- you know, the... If you lose your seat on a committee, I think it's a much bigger deal than it would be in some state legislatures and maybe even in the House. And going back to your point, like our members of Congress do a whole lot of constituent casework. Our state legislators do, too, but not near as much. as. And so, like, policy is a big part of, of the role there. Well, and the staff, you know, the the our congressional members have staff here in the district. Um, we have uh, Meridian Office for Representative Fulcher, for example, uh, where they do constituent casework when people have problems with the federal government. Yeah, oh, uh, definitely an interesting discussion. We'll see how long, if this continues, Steve King's punishment or whether it gets um, figured out here soon. We're going to take a break here on the Big Tent, um, but please come back and join us. All right, welcome back to The Big Tent on KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise, here on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler, doing an excellent job on the boards, and our special guest, Stephanie Witt. Um, We uh, have talked about kind of federal government shutdown, Steve King. Uh, We're going to move on to something a little bit different, um, but something I, a topic I know you both have done some research on, and that is on preemption policies. And maybe just start explaining what preemptions are. Uh, Well, preemption is when the state legislature uh, enacts a law that prohibits an action by local governments. That's a loose definition. There's There are a lot of ways you can preempt local activity, but a direct way would be that. So, for example, um, the city of Austin might decide to pass a 
prohibition on plastic bags, thinking, you know, for the environment and so on. And the state legislature will see that and say, oh, no, we don't want a bunch of uh, different patchwork of regulations about plastic bags or we just don't like that idea generally. And they'll pass a law prohibiting passing prohibitions against plastic bags. So it's uh, you're kind of cutting the action by local government, sometimes in advance of any actual ordinances that have been considered by cities. It's really interesting. Do we have some examples here in Idaho? Has the Idaho legislature engaged in passing some preemption policies? Oh, yeah, they like it. Uh, I think <laughs> that uh, some examples would be uh, over the regulation of uh, Uber and uh, those kinds of car ride services. Uh, Short-term rental legislation uh, or regulation is also preempted at the state level, and I believe plastic bags (laughs) are uh, preempted here in Idaho. Uh, Almost every state has a preemption on the local regulation of firearms, uh, and we, of course, have that same thing. It's really interesting. Uh, What seems to be some reasons states do this? Uh, You know, from our research, uh, there's a lot of different explanations, but I, I think and one reason we're talking about preemption now is preemption, I mean, of course, goes back to the beginning of our country, um, and the federal government can preempt states. Um, so this isn't particularly new. We saw a lot of it you know, decades ago, but the thing that makes it interesting now is that it seems to be becoming more and more frequent, um, particularly in about the last decade. Uh, and so one of the most prominent explanations for why it's becoming more frequent is because you're getting conservative leadership at the state level, but you're getting progressive cities. So you can think, uh, again, Texas is a good example. Um, So you have Texas, which is mostly conservative state, so they have state legislatures that are mostly conservative, but then you have cities like Austin that have very liberal progressive leaders. Um, You have San Antonio, uh, Houston, Dallas, some of these big cities that are very like blue blue islands and red seas, if you're looking at those electoral maps. So the city of Austin goes and really does something outrageous like something very liberal very progressive and the state's like no nope, we don't want that um and one of the i guess the probably the best example of this is uh the city of charlotte and the uh anti-discrimination bill when it comes to transgender people and the city of charlotte again is a blue sea and a red field when it comes to elections and the north carolina state legislature is very conservative um the republicans there are very I want to say militant, but that might not be the best word. Um, They're very aggressive in their policymaking. So, I mean, where that entire controversy came from is Charlotte passed a bill that said basically ban discrimination against transgender uh, Americans or transgender citizens. And the state legislature said, no, you can't do that. Um, And that's where all of this came from is just stopping cities from doing it. So we see lots of examples, but I think that's one of the best examples or best explanations of what's gone on in the last decade is that cities are progressive and they're becoming... um, more empowered and more mobile when it comes to making policies because i think decades ago that cities kind of kept a small policy sphere and left things to the states now they're getting more aggressive and they're like we're going to deal with this problem because the state's not doing it Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes they're ahead of the state where they're uh looking to um uh add an additional layer of regulation for example um Prohibitions against fracking is another example of of an issue in many states where the local governments want to use their power of zoning to say, no, you can't do fracking within city limits. And in some cases, that's been upheld by uh, state Supreme Courts as allowable. But in general, uh, cities are creatures of their states, as we say in political science. That's a restatement of Dillon's rule. And <laughs> and uh, even in states with home rule, we still see a lot of preemption. Now, there's, a, there's an extra take on this I wanted to point out. In, in some state 
preemption laws, they actually allow prosecution of local officials who vote for uh, bans on plastic bags and things oh, wow. like this that have been preempted by the state. That's that's pretty amazing um, to write that into the policy. Um, what you know, I'm very interested in interest groups. Do interest groups sometimes play a role in these types of preemptions? Yes, they do. Uh, there are a couple. Of course, the firearm preemptions are are a lot alike, and they tend to be modeled after NRA suggested. Um, model policies, uh, the National Rifle Association. There, there are, uh, is also a group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that um, does a lot of training and development with um, conservative state legislators across the country. A lot of, a lot of uh, conferences and training, and they have uh, an extensive set of model pieces of model legislation, and you can, you can kind of see the fingerprints of that in a lot of preemption laws that it that they are modeled on the ALEC model laws. Well, and also throw out, I mean, if we're going to talk about interest groups, um, I think one thing that spurs this on, particularly with environmental interest groups, uh, they have found that when the state is not necessarily interested in what they're doing, they can go to the local level. So maybe an example in Boise is that if you are, you know, one of these environmental interest groups in the state legislature, you're not getting traction on something, maybe the city of Boise is interested. Um, and so you can start lobbying at that level. So certainly that's one of the things that's fueled a lot of this more progressive uh, policy activism at the local level, is that we have interest groups out there doing model legislation, lobbying, encouraging cities to get more more involved. And that's just kind of like poking the bear of the state legislature. Um, and so I think that's also one of the things that fuels a lot of this. Well, there's a, there's a real direct business interest in this. You know, if you're looking at, you don't want to, <coughs> you, you want to do business in the state of Idaho, but you don't want to deal with five or six different regulations schemes, right, or cost schemes. So that that's, tends to be a persuasive argument to state legislators that, that uh, for example, uh, a lot of cities have passed or considered uh, soda taxes, right, taxes on the sugary sweet drinks and the National Beverage um, Alliance or whatever their representative is called, you know, for that sector of the economy, you know, comes roaring in and saying, look, this is going to be a mess if there's one set of rules in this city and another set of rules over here. And they they argue about that patchwork of regulation and that they don't want to have to lose money because of that. Well, I think, uh, you know, just a key part of this, as we've kind of been talking around, is there's a lot of different venues for policymaking and uh, and regulation of things. And so these interest groups essentially venue shop and you go and find the where, whoever's going to be the friendliest to, to your position, right? Um, and so I think that's also one of those things that, I mean, of course, if you're the state legislature and people are doing things that you don't like and you have interest groups telling you to preempt it, you're going to stop it. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's just one of the advantages of being the state legislature. Well, that's the one of the beauties of the, the federal system, right? If you're losing at one level of government, you can take the fight to another and uh, try to influence there, what we call the scope of conflict. That's really interesting, and especially I've seen these grow over time, or at least be very trendy lately, so we appreciate you coming and sharing some information on that, and for joining us. It's been great to have you, Stephanie. Thank you. Please come back in the future, um, and thank you for all for everyone listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, and we will um, be with you next week.